0: Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. We are very pleased to have Paul Monson, currently an architect for the Special Projects Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where, among other things, he's involved in the design and construction of temples. Monson received his Master's in Architecture from the University of Notre Dame, the only program in the country with an express emphasis on classicism. He has a special interest in classical architecture and is the president of the Utah chapter of the nonprofit Institute of Classical Art and Architecture. We'll talk about with Paul about his career and his leadership at the ICAA. But first, let's talk about the painting he has chosen. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. We're glad to have you. and And tell us. We're going to talk about two paintings. We're going to start with number one. Tell us which painting you've chosen. Yeah. So I
1: appreciate you letting me choose uh, two paintings. I realize that I'm kind of breaking the rules here. That's your... right. It's a new rule, so we're okay. I'm the second person on the podcast, so two paintings. And I picked uh, one by Casey Childs, which uh, is titled Brigham Young and Wilford Woodruff, reviewing records of the first endowments for the dead, and also one by a Joseph Bricky titled Journey to Bethlehem.
0: Okay. I'm, I'm excited about both of these, both by contemporary artists. Right. Um, who I... Uh, I know pretty well personally, which is always a danger because I, I have my own opinions about them that aren't necessarily distanced, right? So you're going to you're gonna have to check me on these as we talk about them if I, if I stray too far into personal territory. But let's just talk on a very high level about the first painting by Casey Childs titled, again, Brigham Young and Wilford Woodruff Reviewing Records of the First Endowment for the Dead. It was done in 2014, and it currently hangs where? So
1: this is hanging in the St. George Temple, Mm -hmm. and it was one of about a dozen or so paintings that we commissioned from contemporary artists uh, Mm -hmm. through a donation to the church to have some original art in the St. George Temple, which didn't have much. Most temples, we try to have a few pieces of original art, at least. Yeah. And so we received this donation, reached out to several artists, And this was one that was specifically commissioned for the St. George Temple, and it depicts a moment in history. We don't know exactly where or when this moment might have happened, but it it happened somewhere at some point. And so uh, Casey Childs worked with us to create this uh, narrative, this depiction of uh, Wilford Woodruff, Brigham Young on the fourth floor of the St. George Temple, looking at this book. And reviewing these first records of endowments for the dead. So this is
0: this is in the Saint George Temple now, and it is a piece that relates directly to it. You get to commission this, and um, I I uh, I've got it in front of me right now. And I also, for those who are listening, you can go to our website, org under the podcast tab, and see a high-quality reproduction of it. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me about this when I first saw it is, well, it's it's one of those images. I'm a 19th century art scholar. That's my background. And um, the 19th century, among a lot of people, is famous for, and it, not in a good way, for official art. This is art that is usually has some kind of historical significance to the state or the church in some regard. And um, there's images like... Napoleon preparing papers before the battle with the Russian troops, right? And this has got a kind of element to it of of official art, if you didn't know it, if you didn't know as part of the culture. And what's interesting to me about it is that if you are a part of the culture, it's one of those things about being LDS, about being members of the church, that there are significant moments or events in our history which are not... Action-packed moments—they're iterative, they're meditative, they're the kind of thing that that uh, we should know about. But because they're not bullets flying or horses jumping, that it's not easy to capture. And I was interested um, in that aspect of this work. That if you asked a painter to do this, how do you put? How many versions of this do you come up with before you land on this particular? moment, and how do you choose to depict the scene? Yeah, well,
1: why is this scene important? I have the privilege of working with uh, Elder Bruce Hafen, who was the former president of the St. George Temple Emeritus 70, and uh, Elder William Walker, who was the executive director of the Temple Department Uh at the time, and we wanted to capture a moment that represented the role that St. George St. George Temple played in the restoration Mm
0: -hmm.
1: we don't always talk about the St. George Temple Mm -hmm. in company with Kirtland and Nauvoo Mm -hmm. but it really as one author put it it was one of the three temples of the restoration it really took three temples to get to the organization and the the way of doing temple ordinances that we have today the first The first endowments for the dead were not done until the Saint George Temple, so 1877. We had endowments that were done in uh, prior to that, even in the Salt Lake Endowment House, and uh, for the living. But these these ordinances were not really uh, systematized. They weren't really written down mm-hmm. or figured out uh, as a way of ongoing uh, temple. Uh, worship until saint george. And so what I like about this painting is it captures a moment. Yeah, it it's not the most dramatic uh, moment that you would uh, think of mm-hmm. painting, but I love the the historic details in it, the architectural details, uh the the clothing, just everything that Casey was able to uh, capture, yeah. this kind of spirit of St. George, and you get a glimpse of the red hills through the window.
0: That was a detail that really fascinated me as I was, and it may be hard to see unless you really zoom in on it. It's a it's a fairly large painting in person, so you are able to see through the windows. This is, from what I understand, talking with Casey. Um, this is the uh, oh, the, uh, the the upper room in the temple. You said it was the. Fourth floor. Fourth floor, and the, this is the the, room the assembly, assembly room. the general assembly room, and this is uh, where they um, they they. I guess where what where I was going to go with that is, the Saint George Temple before the Salt Lake Temple was built was the de facto temple that was used by many of the brethren. There were regular trips down there. For a couple of decades, it existed as the de facto temple before Salt Lake was built because it took so long to build the Salt Lake Temple. Yeah,
1: they announced Salt Lake in uh, 53, Mm -hmm. but by 1871, when they announced St. George, it was still, you know, just getting off the ground. And so Mm -hmm. Brigham Young realized that they wouldn't finish before he died. Mm they finished the St. George temple 1877 in January and he died in August 1877 so there was only those you know seven months or so when he could officiate in the temple with uh, Wilfred Rudolf was the first president mm-hmm. of the St. George temple oversee these ordinances they could write them down they could mm-hmm. perform them they could practice them and it was the first time when Joseph Smith received all of these revelations but he really left it up to Brigham Young to put them into practice
0: right right and there's this there's these uh, moments that are discussed in um, the uh, in Wilford Woodruff's journal where he's piecing together different elements from things that Joseph Smith is saying this is this book from what I understand that Casey ha- ha- had act this is the actual book that the notes from Wilford Woodruff and Joseph— and uh, Brigham Young's conversations were recorded in this journal with Wilfred Woodruff that he has in the temple, and Brigham is feeling a sense of urgency because its he knows it's coming near the end of his life. He died shortly after this, and this is really one of the last great contributions that he makes is they wrap up the, uh, the endowment session and all the ordinances in it. Um, compare uh, that, that we have today. I, I should say this. I have a friend who is uh, a, one of the uh, church uh, historians, John Peterson. He's now an institute teacher at the U. And he told me that in the first iterations of the endowment session, they were about 13 hours long. Yeah. Something so. to that extent. The, the, the contents didn't differ. There was a lot of repetition, a lot more repetition. And part of that was that our modern version is something that we're expected to go through several times in a lifetime and back then the expectation wasn't necessarily the same thing. Yeah. So even then between the t- so up to Brigham Young they had to come up with their own version of it that uh, was was the chi- which was the grandfather of the one we have and the one that we have today is a descendant of most closely this one.
1: Yeah, and a lot of things happened in St. George that clarified how temple work was going to be done and really uh, set the stage for what is currently, you know, our big push in family history work. Yeah. Uh, Because it became clear as Wilford Woodruff began doing the ordinances and and they had more temples, had more time to do these ordinances that we would be doing this work for everyone. At first, it was just a focus on your immediate family being sealed to each other, trying to s- seal your own family back in a, in a direct line. Mm-hmm. And then it became clear that, no, everyone needs these ordinances and you don't need to be related to the person that you're doing the ordinance for. That was something that was new in mm-hmm. St. George. And now the work just opened up and really led to the building of temples throughout the world and family history work. Mm-hmm. And really what we think of today as, uh, temple worship really began more in St. George or, or, uh, maybe it was clarified through St. George, mm-hmm. uh, started in Kirtland, took another step in Nauvoo. And then St. George But really, St. George played that pivotal role, and that's why we wanted to have this painting done.
0: How close is this architectural setting that he has to what it looks like today? This is exactly what it looks like today. Okay, so it's been preserved. This floor has been.
1: Interesting. Yeah, Originally, the temple was just two floors that looked like this, a lot like Kirtland or Nauvoo. You know, you have these large open assembly rooms with a pulpit on either side. Mm and the ironic priest on one side right. and Rolkesedek on the other. And that's how St. George was. And then over time, they added partitions and things on the lower floors to where we currently do the endowment and other ordinances in the, in the temple. But this fourth floor has stayed preserved the way it is. So if I were to go to the St. George temple, where would I see this painting? This painting right now is in the lobby. So you come right past the recommend desk and it's...
0: Okay. There. Okay, so it's it's fairly accessible.
1: Yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah, it's front and center, trying
0: to tell this story that I don't think many members really No, remember. no, and I think that's that's one of the great things about a painting like this is it it puts it puts a narrative immediately on something that's difficult to distill, and even as a painting, it's somewhat difficult to distill. One of the things, I, but I'll, before we move on from this painting, that I want to say about. Uh, Casey Childs, that I really admire. Casey is one of the greatest portrait painters that we have, not only in this region but that we have nationally. Yeah. The national Por- The National Portrait Society of America, which every year holds a contest, has I think it's somewhere around 4,000 entries every year, and Casey is consistently placed in the top 20, if not the top 10, artists from around the world and the country who've participated in that. He's done. A few historical narrative pieces and one or two that are in the church that are quite exciting uh, to look at. Um, the thing that I like about his portraits that aren't necessarily commissioned but are of people, I should say his figurative work, that's a better way of saying it, is that Casey has a background, and one day we will interview him. I've talked to him today. We'll interview him for this podcast. He comes at this from a designer's perspective. And uh, there's a great saying that I, I uh, have heard Uh, Repeated by by many people that all great art, regardless of its figurative or abstract, all great art is abstract on some level. It's about line, it's about lights and darks, positive and negative space. And Casey seems to be one of those people that no matter what he's depicting, he has the ability to draw you into a piece. So here he's put them on a slight angle. And if you go from Brigham Young's hand... Um, and them looking at the book to the elbow of Wilfred Woodruff, it draws you naturally, almost as if the painting is, is tilting you into the window and the background where you see the red rock. He has a way of drawing the eye around the piece that I think isn't immediately obvious, but you're subconsciously taken through it. Yeah, and I think he captures the spirit of
1: these two individuals really well, too. I mean, I, I love. he is just masterful at his depiction of the human face, the human figure. Yeah. And, you know, you have Wilford Woodruff, who has this look of kind of eagerness, excitement, trying, you know, to show Brigham Young these records that they've created, and Brigham Young is there at the end of his life with his cane, uh, just looks like a sense of kind of satisfaction. Yeah. like like this burden yeah. that he had carried with him across the plains and for years and years that they'd finally finished a temple where they could perform this work that yeah. Joseph Smith had commissioned him to do.
0: He has a an ability on a on a technical level that surprises me. Um the, there's various rules that artists in the classical tradition usually followed when it came to multifigural or narrative scenes and one of them was the most important figures in the center and in the brightest light and that meant don't put the the, the most important figures mostly in black <laughs> right and here you've got these two figures dressed in period clothing which were dark and all of the surrounding colors are light. It's it's a good artist knows how and when to break the rules. And here he's broken the rules by making them pitch black almost in the center of the painting. Yeah, the painting is almost entirely black and white, except
1: for you get that thread of the red rock and then that color kind of echoed
0: in the stained pine wood floor. Is it just me or is that red rock kind of um, uh, illuminating the inside a little bit like there's this ambient light that's coming off the red onto the walls? and creating a bit of an orange glow. I'll have to ask, I'll have to see it in person because I don't know if it comes across in the, uh, in the reproduction, in the digital image as well. It never does, never does. You have to see it in person. So I wanna ask you a little bit about your, uh, your work for the church. What is your role there? So I'm an architect
1: and one of six architects that gets to work on temples for the church. So representing the church as we design new temples, as we renovate and maintain existing temples. I work with interior designers and engineers, everything from the overall site plan and concepts of the exterior down to the, you know, the details of what the front handle feels like when you grab it with your hand to enter the Mm -hmm. temple. You know, the furniture, colors, we get to do it all, and one of my favorite parts about it is working on historic temples. Oh,
0: so so it's also going back to historic right. temples.
1: You know, it was part of this initiative of the original art in St. George. Uh, there's a lot of work that n- has to be done to maintain and restore these older temples, and yeah. uh, so I've had the privilege to be a part of that. It's been a real blessing.
0: I imagine that... Uh, it, even a, working with a brand new temple, you're working with a huge range of specialists to to, to get something done. As you mentioned, you're, everything from the handles to the foundations,
1: yeah, to the team.
0: to the to the soundproofing to to the piping, everything, right? I mean, uh, I, I assume that working with an historic temple is even more so another layer of specialists. You're yeah, dealing. it's a layer yeah. of preservation, yeah. and we're thinking
1: about questions like what's appropriate, you know. Uh, do you replicate something from history? Yeah. Do you change it so that it's obvious that you're working in a different time? And how do you do that? What's the right approach? Uh, these are living buildings, so temples evolve. They, they change over time as the needs change, uh, populations grow. And so St. George originally was just that little jewel box of a temple, but now it has a big annex on it that was built in the 70s, and yeah. Uh, yeah. that needs renovation work. What do you do? Do you make it look like the old temple? Do you make it look like the 70s? Do you make it look like today? Those are really big questions. But one of my favorite things is working with artists. I love working with the artists. We have fantastic uh, talent in what, the church.
0: What is the, uh, the relationship between architecture? and art when you're building a temple? What, what is your relationship with artists like? Well, um, and, and the art that goes, that goes into it? There are two kinds of art that we
1: put in temples. There's the, the framed art. We have some originals and some prints that we use just because you know, there's so much art in the temples we couldn't possibly have originals for everything. Right. And then we also do the murals. Uh, for the endowment rooms and representing the creation or the world. And so those are kind of on a heroic scale. Right. And we.
0: So it's really kind of two questions and two groups of people you're working with. Yeah, we work closely The kind that them. are maybe more modular, right, but still are specific to the temple right? somewhat. But then there are these that are. The, then there are the the monumental works that actually are part of the building structure itself on some level. Exactly. Yeah, and I love that integration
1: of architecture and art. Kind of goes back to my classical training. Um, Having those work together in a relationship so that the architecture supports the art and the art supports the architecture. So that's a real joy.
0: This goes into your, your training. Some questions I wanted to ask you about Notre Dame. So uh, Notre Dame has the distinction of being the only architectural program in the United States that has a, a, a specific focus on classicism. How is their program different than if I went to the University of Chicago or another school, for example? What is it about that classicism? Yeah, in the mid-20th century,
1: just about every school abandoned the classical tradition. So they teach uh, modernism. Mm -hmm. And when I was looking at grad schools, I was trying to decide where I wanted to go and went and visited Notre Dame and saw these beautiful watercolors that the students were doing and these renderings, these designs that I couldn't Believe were being done today. They were just hmm. uh, beautiful images. How did you see those? How did how did they? How did you? They, have they them come in? around the in the architecture school. Okay. okay, and you know I would go and interview at these different schools. And
0: so you were looking at various
1: before you landed on Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I was really looking for job security.
0: <laughs> Very practical decision. And, and makes sense. Notre
1: Dame has this job fair every year with, you know, a hundred firms coming to try and recruit thirty students. Mm-hmm. And I was you know, puzzled by that and trying to figure out why that is. And there's there's just a real demand for authentic, uh, traditional design. And it's not taught anywhere else. And so mm-hmm. uh in a way, it was kind of a selfish, practical decision
0: to go there because this was a place where people were. I knew I would get a job. Yeah. yeah, it seems like there there are various um, there are various architects who have been involved with the church who have come through the Notre Dame program. Is is this a uh, is this having a huge influence culturally in our community? This this Notre Dame classical vein this this, this uh, channel, I was going to say, being built from the Catholic Notre Dame University to the, uh, to the LDS community? Yeah, well, I think the church looks at
1: uh, all varieties of architecture and can, we can find good in a lot of different historic periods and historic styles. And I don't think of classicism as a style. For me, it's mm-hmm. really a set of principles that could be applied to a lot of different styles, whether
0: it's uh, Georgian or federal or uh, arts and crafts or... Uh, so there's a really practical element to it that doesn't necessarily come out with a superficial idea. Yeah, so it's, it's a language, it's a set of proportions, and it's a way
1: of building so that uh, it won't fall down, it, it will last a long time. Uh, you know, historically, classical buildings were load-bearing masonry, right. you know, you're, you're building with a sense of, of history and uh, trying to be, capture a sense of timelessness, which I think is relevant for temples, which are intended to last a long time, right? We're not building them for a quick profit, mm-hmm. like a developer's uh, commercial center. And mm-hmm. These are monuments, they're icons that will be around for a long time, and to follow Every fad and fashion in architecture doesn't really make a lot of sense.
0: So I want to um, I want to get back to something you said about working with with painting as an architect. Um, traditionally, in the Beaux Arts academies of Europe, going back to the 17th century, or even earlier, I guess you could say, you know, the 15th century, the Quattrocento, and Raphael and Michelangelo. These were all people who saw. An integration between sculpture, painting, and architecture that those were the three fine arts with a capital F and a capital a that that you would go to these uh, academies to learn and they were all seen they they, they seem to all be based on a a shared central philosophy and most recently you're you're currently. The president of the nonprofit Institute for Classical Arts and Architecture, the Utah chapter. Right. Um, how does that organization work with the with the other? How does it play with the other two fine arts? So. Th-
1: There's this big gap in our education system today, and nobody teaches classical and traditional art or architecture, really. You have to learn it on your own. Mm -hmm. And so the ICAA, or the Institute for Classical Architecture and Art, was set up to try and fill that gap. And we offer educational classes, uh, workshops, you know, building tours, trying to teach these traditional ways of designing and of painting, and of sculpting and doing the, the building arts. And so in Utah, we have a really strong community of architects and artists who are interested in this. And there's nowhere to go really to, to learn it. And the ICA is one, Uh, organization that tries to to teach this today and you know a lot of people say it's irrelevant it's just in the past but i think if you learn these principles you can apply them and be a better designer no matter what style preference you so
0: so who's your audience for the icaa is it everyone from from is it working is it strictly for working architects artists um, is it interior designers? Is it what, what kinds of people are members of the ICAA?
1: Yeah, it's all of those, and our events are open to the public, so you can go to classassistutah.org. That's our website, and you can see our current calendar for the year. Every year we have maybe a dozen or so events, uh, everything from you know, very practical hands-on workshops. This weekend we're doing a workshop on uh, creating your own uh, field sketching box, so something that can hang on your shoulders and you can be sketching mm. and have all your paints and things out there uh, without you know dropping them, and you you can watercolor in the field.
0: So is that something that you've uh, you've done yourself? That as a uh, as an yeah. architect, you've gotten away from the uh, what I don't even know the software you use. Is it, is it Auto? Is AutoCAD? AutoCAD? Yeah, yeah. At Notre Dame they
1: taught hand drafting, and we'd a semester in Rome, and we had to just sit in the piazzas and. Draw the, you know.
0: You went on your own little, your own grand tour exercises. Yeah. That would have been remarkable. Do you feel like you're using a different part of your brain than when you're using AutoCAD? And what's the benefit of of the sketching?
1: Definitely. There's some kind of connection that happens when you're physically drawing with your hand and you're using instruments like, uh, you know, the square and the compass and you're creating things with these relationships and principles that you find in nature. Mm -hmm. And And, of course, those things can be translated onto the computer because the computer is just another drafting tool, really. But I think having that foundation first, learning how to draw by hand is really valuable um, Mm. because it helps you to see things differently.
0: John Berger would certainly agree. I don't know if you've ever heard of his book, Ways of Seeing. He was a modernist. He wasn't necessarily a classist in any way, but he did talk about the use of... Of, uh, of sketching um, works of art is a way to understand them differently. And I, I kind of wonder, it's something that I've been interested in, at UCL, which is where I did my my PhD, um, University College of London, is uh, one of the hubs today for a new neuroscience field called neuroaesthetics. And one of the things they're trying to figure out is how does the brain um, Process art differently. What is the human evolutionary purpose of creating and viewing art? Is is a foundational question. But one of the things that classicism, and when I've I've been to a couple of events that you've held with ICAA, um, that I, that that makes me wonder if there's a field of research. And I want to ask you about how it affects you. Is I don't want to know just about the experience of art from a neurological level. I want to know how getting away from technology like AutoCAD, like Photoshop, um, not that I'm anti these things. I think they've got their place. But I wonder how it influences the practice of using them. So in your everyday work, um, if you're working on an aspect of, let's say, you know, a particular temple's construction, do you find yourself stepping away and sketching in order to do something? Is that part of the discipline you're talking about? And how, and if so, how does that change your efforts? I do. There's
1: really two parts in design for me. There's kind of the conceptual yeah. beginning to anything, and I have to work by hand. Okay. If I if I start on the computer, I just get stuck. Interesting. I'm... Part of the problem with the computer is that you can zoom in to infinity, right? So you can get into these very fine details. Where I like to take a thicker pen, with and just start with broader strokes, the big relationships of things, and that's very hard for me to do on a computer. So conceptually, it helps to start that way. And then I'm also, you know, using these tools that, you know, they would have found in the tomb of some ancient architect in Pompeii. Right. The same tools. Right. The squares and levels and compasses and that you can create mathematical relationships, these proportions that from a large scale to a small scale help a work whether it's a painting or whether it's uh, a building to feel like a cohesive whole, like a consistent composition. Interesting. So uh, you kind of set your rules that you you use over and over at different scales. And that's really what the classical language is based on. If you learn the orders, the Doric, Ionic, Corinthian orders, they each have these proportional relationships that then inform everything from the floor plan to the elevation to the detail of that little flower on the rosette, you know? So... It, it helps me to not not feel like I'm just being arbitrary. Right. Like I have a set of principles that I, I can rely on and be consistent from from one building to the next. And, and I think that's something that's kind of missing from a lot of architectural practice today. It's just uh, you go by eye and it's trial and error and you don't know whether something you draw is going to be Good or not. Right. Uh, I remember. Because there's nothing to
0: really compare it to. Right. And the first
1: class I had at Notre Dame where we drew this set of classical columns Mm -hmm. and then hand watercolored them. And I stood back and looked at it and said, wow, that's the most beautiful thing that I've ever drawn. Hmm. Interesting. I had been taught my whole life that you don't ever copy, you don't ever imitate. Right. And yet, in language when we learn language that's what we do we imitate we copy until we reach a point where we can then express ourselves
0: yeah. so I think that's really valuable sure. in, in, mm-hmm. in arts music no matter what it is yeah well one of the, the let's talk about the second piece that you brought and there's a relationship to the ICAA between this this with this artist the second work you've chosen is um, Joseph bricky's work journey into Bethlehem Um First of all, tell us why you wanna talk about this work. Sure,
1: well Joseph is a good friend of mine and he is now running a school down in Provo called the Beaux Arts Academy Mm -hmm. uh, with Nikki Covington and some others. And that school was actually, it's, it's an iteration of a program that was started through the ICAA in New York and then was brought out here to Utah by Robert Baird who founded our chapter here in Utah. And uh, Joseph is a very prolific artist. Uh, he is one of these contemporary classicists. I mean, he understands. He's very and he's self-taught, but he understands these ideas of proportion and geometry at a level that I, I don't even. Understand.
0: He's a a philosopher artist, isn't he? He is. I've known Joseph for many years, and um, I know that he started in the illustration program at the University of Utah. Not at the University of Utah. I'm sorry, at Brigham Young University. And um, his cohort was very interested in the principles of classical art. And the illustration programs, not just at BYU, but at many schools, are often the inheritors of the classical tradition because they're concerned about, um, as illustrators, about structure in the human figure, musculature, um, principles of design, that uh, they've got elements of advertising in some of what they do. And um, it's it's interesting how he's taken that to a whole nother level in his own work. He regularly travels to Rome. He's one of the most studied artists I know in copying, other old, in copying old masters. Yeah. And that seems to be a, a practice that, like you were saying, with architecture, even within art, if you want to go learn classicism, you can't really go to an accredited university in the same way that a, uh, a studio artist would go to school today to get a degree there's this whole system of ateliers, we call them, artist studios and schools that are cropping up all over the world. And Joseph has been a part of that movement for a very long time, and I, th- I think they're doing something very special down there.
1: Yeah, so they teach anatomy, they teach you know, figure drawing and painting, sculpture, and Joseph and Nikki are board members for the Oh, Okay, I didn't Utah. know that.
0: And so tell me, so so this work, let's talk about how classism shows up in this work. Sure. But let's first talk about what the work is itself. It's titled Journey to Bethlehem. Now, the place <clears throat> I've seen this is in the waiting room area of the Salik Temple. Um, but I don't know if that's where the original hangs. Um, and it's hard to know because this is one of those images within LDS culture that has become ubiquitous. It
1: has. I mean, you can buy this a desert book, but it's also hanging in temples. And there's not too many paintings like that. We usually try to keep paintings in temples kind of exclusive in in temples. They're ones you won't see outside. But
0: this is one that, yeah, it is pretty ubiquitous. Where, can I tell you where I first saw it? Yeah, yeah. And I, t- I want you to tell me at the same time why you chose it. And maybe that's the same re- same thing. So I arrived at the temple department uh, about six years
1: ago. I had, after graduating from Notre Dame, I worked uh, in commercial and residential... Uh,
0: in New Jersey, right?
1: Architecture, right, in New Jersey for several years. And then I uh, was asked to join the, the church's temple team. And If you've ever been in the church office building, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just a bunch of floors of offices and cubicles. And it was very disorienting for me. I Mm -hmm. got lost several times. Fairly prosaic. My first week. But this painting was hanging at the end of one of the hallways, Uh a large scale version of it, like four by six or something. And so I always knew where I was when I saw this painting. And I think Joseph has the ability of really drawing you in. And you you mentioned that about Casey, but I think Joseph does that as well, where you almost feel like you're there. And one of the things that I love about this painting is the way that, you know, we talk about this story as this grand, almost myth, you know, in, in our culture, and, This painting, for me, brings these characters down to earth, makes them very human. And so you have Joseph. He's like, you know, this... Not Joseph Rickey,
0: but Joseph.
1: Joseph in the painting. As in Joseph and Mary. Right. uh, uh, Like this typical man, here, I'll, I'll get us to Bethlehem. He's just looking ahead, you know, focused on where he's going. And Mary's sort of having this introspective... Moment, uh, looking at this boy who's a shepherd, and I think that the symbolism of her son who would become a shepherd right. is is really powerful.
0: It's a brilliant narrative stroke that he's that he's got here because you've got them headed to Jerusalem. No, sorry, to Bethlehem, where the birth is going to take place. She's very pregnant, even holding, as as if you've seen pregnant women sometimes do, as if they're. They're trying to balance themselves a little bit or rest their hands on this protuberance that's come out of them, right? And as they're walking towards this uh, place where where the birth is going to uh, take place, they pass a flock of sheep and there's a little shepherd boy at the end who she's having a little boy, he's a little boy. They glance at one another for a moment and um, I also love the addition of the black sheep that he's caught at the end. So there's another layer of the idea of of uh, of it not all being easy and and cheerful, but there are some elements of of of, uh, of thoughtfulness in that. And I, I it's it's uh, it is um, like you said, he's taken this epic moment that is often done with. Halos and a huge amount of symbolism, and he's boiled it down to what could have been a roadside momentary passing observation from everyday life. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I have kids, I know you have kids, and that moment of your first child is just life changing. And life is crazy with kids. You move forward. With faith, but you really have no idea what is coming, mm-hmm. and you kind of sense that in them that they're just, you know, they are on this journey,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but going into the unknown. Right. And that really, has, you know, strikes a chord with me as a father. I know this image is everywhere, but I still, I, I love this. Image.
0: It it always captures you maybe a little bit in the throat on that uh, on in that that personal level.
1: One of the, uh, and and so the, 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 you know, the artistic technique, I think, is also very impressive. You know,
0: I'm, I'm very impressed by this image. I've, I've seen a lot of Joseph Rickey's over the years, and I think that we, we become inured to a lot of works that we see on a regular basis to the point that we don't think of them and their artistic creation and the choices that were made. I don't often think of Joseph Ricky as a landscape painter. But this is a remarkable landscape. The light. The, the light, light the choices, colors. it's very atmospheric. It almost looks like a Bierstadt kind of choice, a Thomas Cole in the way that he would bring the light in there. Yeah, the
1: atmosphere towards the back and the mm-hmm. way that the
0: yeah, the way that the light falls into the foreground. He also makes some really abstract choices about where shadows fall in the foreground and where light casts on all of the figures. On a classical, in a classical sense, that figure of the boy is standing in a classical Greek contrapposto pose, where he's got his hips on an angle and his shoulders at a at a at an angle that's 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 somewhat um, um, reversed from what the hip ang- angle is and the foot back. But it's done in such a way that you don't notice that he's making these kinds of classical choices. It's it's really um, a lightly touched. It, it's this great marriage between classicism and the decisions that are made there, and um, and and uh, naturalism and observation of everyday life.
1: Yeah, and it says a lot about the time and dedication that Joseph has put into. Learning how to depict the human form, animals. Uh,
0: that's a great landscape.
1: Yeah, very believable, but in a
0: uh, in a narrative that is really compelling. Yeah. I I think it's a it's a tour de force. It's one of his best paintings, and that's saying something because he's done a lot of pieces. Um, I don't know how he would feel about that that comment that it's one of his best pieces because. I'm. I'm not. Because I. I love so many of his pieces, Um, and maybe it's just that this is the one I'm looking at at the moment that makes me feel that way about it. Well, I. Before we let you go, I know that uh, the Institute of Classical Art and Architecture this summer has a gala planned, and um, I want you to tell us a little bit about it. And there's a deadline coming up for um, those who want to be a part of it. Sure. Yeah, we are
1: fundraising to. Uh, give scholarships to artists to study classical uh, art and to architects. We are fundraising to uh, bring in speakers from around the world. And one of the things we thought would be fun was to have an evening gala. So this uh, June 23rd. June 23rd is the date. Is the date at uh, the Memorial House in Memory Grove. Beautiful location. Beautiful place.
0: Doesn't get visited... often enough in Salt yeah, Lake. Yeah, it's
1: like this hidden gem. I love that place. Yeah. And we are having, as part of that, an, an art auction, an antique auction, and uh, where we'll have some works by European masters as well as contemporary classical artists. And we'll have some classical musicians, some of the finest talent in Utah. And we will... Enjoy a dinner by one of the best chefs in Salt Lake City, a friend of mine, and I I think it's just going to be a wonderful, elegant evening. We hope that anyone who supports the symphony or the opera or the ballet will kind of think of this as the architecture and
0: art version of that. So this is going to be the the reunion of the three fine arts and, and music, the fourth fine arts. Bring music in there too. We're gonna we're gonna bring the Beaux Arts Academy back to life in Salt Lake City. And where where do they go? Let's remind everybody where they can go to find Same out
1: information. Uh, org. and right in there, there's a link for the gala, and you can register. And please come. It'll should be a wonderful evening.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always grateful to see you, and I'm grateful that you picked these two pieces to talk about. We did it. We got both of them in there, and uh, I'm glad we did. They're both uh, remarkable pieces, and uh, I learned things. So, thank you very much. Uh, for, for coming. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Paul Monson for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Arts Society. You can see the works he's chosen on our website, along with works selected by other artists, scholars, and collectors. If you have a work you'd like to suggest or discuss, please visit us at zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab. I'm Micah Christensen, and thank you for listening.